This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, we'll uh, have a word of prayer. But before we do that, one announcement. uh, Don't forget we're having our annual congregational meeting immediately following the uh, morning worship service. So the message is going to be... uh, abbreviated just a little bit, so we'll have time for that. There'll be about a five-minute break so parents can get rescue their kids from prep school and uh, then come back. If you're not a member, we still encourage you to stay and uh, hear a little bit about the business of the church, and then um, and that should not last uh, very long. So that will be following the service. Let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our study today. <clears throat> Father, the great challenge for us in our spiritual life is to live for you and not for ourselves. It's coming to understand and coming to grips with the issue of your authority in our life and the fact that there is only meaning and happiness and there's only uh, real joy and significance in life when we are walking with you and living uh, consistent with your word and your revelation, depending upon you uh, your, and your sustaining grace. And, Father, it is only when we walk by means of the Spirit in light of your word that we have real meaning in life. And yet that challenges the basic orientation of our sin nature, our fallen uh, nature that that seeks to live life independently and to make life work apart from you. And therein lies the core of our battle, whether we trust in ourselves or trust in you. Father, we pray that you, through the Holy Spirit, might strengthen us As we study your word today, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I know you probably don't see it anymore. It's sort of like white noise. But in the title slide at the top for this series, we have the statement that the basic theme in Colossians is that Jesus Christ is all-sufficient. Jesus Christ is enough. Jesus Christ is all that we need. And another way we can put that is adding anything to grace, the grace of God in the gospel, adding anything to Christ, adding anything to the word in terms of that whole idea of sufficiency for our spiritual life, for facing and handling the problems that we have in life, anything that is added to Christ or the scriptures or that relationship with God destroys it. It it dilutes it immediately and negates that because the Scripture really does present God's viewpoint versus our viewpoint. It's one or the other. You can't mix it. It's not a little bit of one, a little bit of the other. Uh, 
it calls for, as I pointed out last time, a, a, a focus and a commitment and a subordination to the authority of God that, that I, I think truly is beyond our, our net natural capability. And this is the very issue that runs throughout all of human history and is a reflection of that ultimate spiritual warfare that began at some time in the in eternity past when the uh, greatest of all the angels Lucifer rebelled against God and in, and his rebellion consisted of his desire to assert himself as independent of God to assert his own authority that he wanted to be like God and that is at the essence of all sin is self-definition we want to define who we are and define our life and find meaning in life apart from what God says. So the battle the, in the soul of all humanity ultimately comes down to this issue of human viewpoint or divine viewpoint, Christ or us. And it is in this central section of Paul's epistle to the Colossians that this is, is reinforced and is the focal point of this whole epistle, beginning, um, although this, this section begins back in 3.5, or 2.5 rather, and extends down through 4.6. Uh, four, Actually, uh, the core where he really gets into it is in the passage that we're looking at right now, uh, 16, actually 16 through two, four, uh, chapter 2, verse 16. We see this emphasized in Colossians 2, 6 through 8, as Paul sets up and introduces us to the basic broad themes that he will expand upon in the core body of this epistle. These verses, he says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. We receive Christ Jesus by faith alone in Christ alone. Now that phrase is one we hear a lot, and any phrase we hear a lot or read a lot tends to get a little bit lost. We, it doesn't take long for it to become just, just white noise. We just don't see it or hear it or pay much attention to it anymore. What it means when we say faith alone in Christ alone is that we believe that Scripture teaches that it is only by faith that we can have receive the righteousness of God which is given to us solely on the basis of faith. It's not faith plus anything. And that is what is, becomes an issue that Paul has to address in the epistle to the Galatians. It is faith alone. It is not faith plus the observance of the Mosaic law. That's Romans chapter 2. Uh, going down into the beginning part of Romans chapter uh, 3. It's Galatians chapters 1 and 2. It, it, it's, there's, we're not justified, Paul says in Galatians 2.16, by the works of the law. For no flesh can be justified by the works of the law, but we are justified by faith in Christ. It's faith alone. But it's Christ alone. It's not Christ plus something else. In salvation, it is Jesus Christ alone. That, that faith is directed toward only one object, which is Jesus Christ and him alone. And we're not believing in Christ plus anything. That's its salvation, that instant of justification. But it also, as Paul indicates here, this is the foundation for the Christian life. It is faith alone. Faith is not in contrast to knowledge 
which is the approach that modern theology, modern philosophy has taken uh, ever since the time of Immanuel Kant of, in the late uh, late uh, 18th century, is that we can't, in his philosophy, he shifted the focal point of human thought from an objective external to a subjective internal. We can't know anything in truth as it is. We only know our perceptions of truth. We all know that there is an element of truth in that. There's an element of truth in every lie. There's an element of truth in every counterfeit. But the reality is is that there is an objective truth. What is so uh, <clears throat> logically... Uh, inconsistent with many of these philosophical statements is their basic foundation, their basic presupposition is self-refuting. The only truth that we, the only way we know truth is that it is only perceived by us. We can't know it as an objective, an objective external truth. Well, is that truth an eternal objective external truth? Yes, it is. Well, then that's only your perception Mr. Kant, how do we know that that applies to anything else? That's your perception. That's not somebody else's. It's an internally illogical statement because it's grounded ultimately on on human thought, human perception that is not informed at all by any divine revelation. There's There's a lot of things that man can learn through his study of creation. There are a lot of things that man can learn through the use of his own intellect. So that we're not saying that that reason and experience are not valid at some points, at many points, but we're saying that ultimately the key elements that orient all of that information is something that is that's revealed by God. And so that foundational element is what we're focusing on. That's why the Word of God and the Word of God alone is sufficient. So we receive Christ by faith alone. And we walk in him by also by faith alone. Now, that doesn't mean that this is some sort of subjective experience, which is how modern man wants to understand this, that it's just truth that is known from your own internal perception, your own subjective reality. It has an external objective uh, uh, truth that can never be changed. So it is, a, it is knowledge, the Scripture says. Faith is not in contrast to knowledge, it is a knowledge that comes through revelation from God as God has spoken to us in times past, the Scripture says, through the apostles uh, and the prophets. So we focus, our faith ultimately is focused on the Word of God. Some people think that, well, isn't our faith focused on Jesus? Yes, but how do you know anything about Jesus? You only know what you know about Jesus because of what the New Testament says about Jesus and what the Scripture says about Jesus. So your faith is really in the Scripture. It's faith in Christ, but it's mediated through the Scripture as your sole authority for truth. And so we believe in Jesus. He's the object of our faith. But in in a, a very real sense, we're believing the statements that the Scripture teaches that the Scripture says that he is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, that he died on the cross as our substitute, he paid the penalty for sin, and by believing in him and him alone we have eternal life. That comes from the Scripture, the promises again and again and again in Scripture. 
But what, what the problem that we have is a problem of authority, as I pointed out last time, which comes from our, our sin nature. From the time that Adam sinned, when Adam disobeyed God and ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in essence he was saying, I know more about the nature of reality than God does. So it's okay to eat this fruit. It's okay to disobey. And when God said, the instant I eat of this, I will, I will die, he really didn't know what he was talking about. But I can learn something through my empirical uh, experiment here by eating the fruit that, uh, that God doesn't know. I can validate God. I can, and in essence, he's setting himself up as the ultimate authority. So at the very core of sin is this, this challenge to divine authority. It, the sin of Adam reflects the sin of Lucifer. I pointed out that this be, last time that this becomes the foundation for all thought that is contradictory to the thought of the Scripture. Once again, just, I just want you to keep remembering this. It's, it's God's way or man's way. It's God's way or Satan's way. I mean, Satan's way, man's way, they're all based on the same foundation of, of asserting our independence from God that somehow, apart from God, we can find that truth that organizes and gives meaning and definition and value to, to, to everything. Now, when, when Satan asserted that, he's doing, as I pointed out earlier, he's asserting his independence from God. What I identified last time is his autonomy, two A's that are the, the foundations to satanic thought, which is the same as, as human thought, human viewpoint, worldliness. They're all the same thing. The first is, is autonomy. I'm independent of God. I don't need God. I don't need him. I can get and learn all I need from other sources. I don't really need God to solve any problems in my life. The difficulty with that is as soon as we assert our independence, at some point, if the world is what God says it is, then we're going to run up against a wall of opposition that's built into God's system. And we can't just define reality how we want it to be defined. And as soon as we hit that wall... Because in essence, what that wall is saying is your assertion of independence is inadequate. It just won't work. We get angry. I, one of the things that I've noticed about myself is that what really upsets me and gets me angry is when I'm trying to do something or really want to accomplish something, and I just can't do it. That that circumstances or people or events block it, and I'm just I'm just shut down. Nothing quite irritates us as much as when we really want to accomplish something and something or somebody stops us and we just can't do it and we react in anger. And eventually, if we're living in the world of God that the Scripture says we're living in, when we're asserting our autonomy from God, our independence from God, and trying to make life work, we're going to hit all kinds of walls that are going to stop us. And so that generates a reaction to God of antagonism. That's the second A in our foundation, autonomy and antagonism. So there's an assertion of a, uh, through autonomy of an alternate way of understanding or interpreting reality. Paul summarizes that in um, the early part here of Colossians 2.8 as, as philosophy and empty deceit, the tradition of men. 
And that philosophy and empty deceit is not philosophy in the technical sense of philosophy, philosophy, but in a more general sense that would include any kind of system of thought that tries to explain ultimate reality, the purpose of man, and, uh, and uh, define what is right and what is wrong. Any system of thought that thinks that it can give us the meaning and definition of life wherein we, we can find uh, happiness. And so there's a lot of different ways and religions and philosophies that can fit into that category, satanic thought built on autonomy and antagonism to God can manifest or express itself probably hundreds of thousands of different ways. And there have been hundreds of thousands of different ways that it's manifested itself in history, and it may be something different for every single uh, human being that's ever ever lived, in which case there would be millions of different uh, religions and, and, and philosophies. But all of this stands in contrast to the precise, exclusive claims of Scripture. And nothing seems to upset some people more than the exclusive claims of Scripture. They just go berserk when a Christian makes the assertion that something is absolutely wrong or that there is only one way to God, that there's only one truth. There aren't multiple truths. It just drives them crazy, and yet from throughout all of Scripture, God asserts one solution again and again and again. And it, it only stands to reason that if the Bible is true, if there is one God who created everything in reality, all of the physical laws, all of the social laws, all the spiritual laws, if there's one God that created everything, then he defines everything. And over against that, we have people trying to come up with their own own definitions. And so there's going to be a conflict again. It's going to generate that, that antagonism. And last time I pointed that out as looking at the whole concept of the sin nature and how, try, addressing the question, how is it that these false systems and these heresies, for that's how this false teaching in Colossae is called, it's usually referred to as a Colossian heresy, how, how do these heresies attract us? They're attractive to us because like a magnet, uh, they attract our sin nature. Our sin nature is resonates and reverberates with the, uh, with, with the offer of independence from Satan and uh, that, that pole of antagonism towards God. And so it's manifested in our lust pattern. That's a basic expression of our, of our self-assertion. I will do it my way. And that manifests itself through a number of different lusts because it's through the lust patterns, whether it's power lust or sexual lust or materialism lust or lust for recognition and lust for love, lust for attention, all of these things. That is how we try to define ourselves. And then that's expressed in terms of specific uh, actions as well as concepts of right and wrong. And so this is expressed in the chart by the polar opposites, but in reality there's all kinds of mixes and blends between the two. Some people are ascetic in one area, licentious in another. They're legalistic in one area, and they are uh, uh, antinomian in other areas. And that these trends, therefore, towards these two polar opposites of of trying to somehow gain approval from God through our own goodness, our own morality, as expressed through either asceticism, which is giving something up to impress God, 
Uh, we've seen an example of that in terms of religion in just this last week with uh, Ash Wednesday and the observance of Lent, that somehow by giving things up for this period of time, this 40 days, uh, from uh, that, that somehow this impresses God and is an indication of spirituality. But, of course, before we give anything up, we're going to overindulge in it on Fat Tuesday. So it's sort of like if you really think about it, one cancels out the other. And so asceticism and legalism can lead to a moral degeneracy. Can also lead to an immoral degeneracy, as I just pointed out, uh, in terms of Mardi Gras. Just go over to uh, uh, New Orleans or down to Galveston for the Mardi Gras observance sometime, and you'll see how this uh, alleged uh, drive towards the asceticism of uh, Ash, Ash Wednesday and giving up for Lent, giving things up for Lent, leads to an immoral degeneracy. The other side of the coin, licentiousness and lasciviousness, can also pre- lead to immoral degeneracy, but it can lead by reaction towards moral degeneracy. They have their corollaries in terms of knowledge and how we think that we can gain knowledge. Moral degeneracy is a morality, asceticism, legalism has a rigid framework for living life that reflects itself usually in a knowledge system where there's a rigid logic, such as in rationalism or empiricism, rationalism being the thought that we can achieve knowledge of everything in the universe simply through the use of human reason. And empiricism is basically the idea that we can achieve knowledge of truth and everything in the universe through a study of, of experience of things we learn through our senses. And op, uh, uh, the polar opposite of that is through immoral degeneracy. There's a overt rejection of authority, all authority, and so we rely upon mysticism, which is just an internal impression. Now, mysticism plays an important role in what's going on in Colossae, and mysticism plays an important role in our thinking today. There's not exactly a one-to-one correspondence between the kinds of false teaching that went on in in uh, Colossae in the ancient world. In fact, uh, there's a lot of debate as to just what that heresy was, what the components were. Nobody's really sure. In fact, uh, one writer said that uh, over 44 different uh, philosophies or religions have been suggested as the source of the Colossian heresy. So we're going to take a little time to look at uh, look at some of that uh, that this this morning. Nobody really knows, but there's clearly a very strong mystical element there. One of the key principles that I learned years and years ago when I was studying philosophy here at the University of St. Thomas was that there are cycles in terms of human thought. If you understand this, it is a real window into interpreting uh, history, is that man in his independence from God will seek to uh, define knowledge and learn truth through reason alone. Reason always, eventually, always shows itself to be an inadequate source of ultimate truth. And so reason will be rejected, and in its place will come empiricism, which is the view that somehow through the study of, of uh, the universe, through my, our experience, what we, through the five senses, what we see, hear, taste, touch, feel, that through that we can come to ultimate truth. But ultimately... Empiricism is always viewed to be an inadequate source of ultimate truth. Well, if man's reason cannot answer these fundamental questions of life 
through either rationalism or empiricism. See, what both of them have in common is that they use a, they're based on a rigorous use of logic. That's why reason's related to both. They're both ultimately based on a faith in human ability. If, if rationalism and, and, and empiricism can't bring us truth, then we can't know truth. And so skepticism always follows. And skepticism is just the idea that how do you know anything is true? You know, this person says this, that person says that. Nobody knows. Let's all just be uh, agnostics. Let's just, uh, we can't know for sure that God exists. We can't prove that he doesn't exist. So we're just agnostics. We're skeptics. We can't know truth. So let's just live on the basis of that and everybody do whatever they want to do. But nobody can live on the basis of pure skepticism. Skepticism is so negative. Nobody likes to be around a skeptic all the time, and nobody can live on the basis of skepticism. People have to live as if there really is meaning and hope and value in life. You can't live as if there's no hope, no future, that at the time of death that the, something doesn't continue on into eternity. People just, that's so hopeless, it's so dark, that people have to, have to throw away uh, all of their uh, intellectual uh, uh, reasonings and intellectual arguments, and they have to leap into the darkness of pure subjectivity to find happiness. And that's mysticism. Mysticism is, says that, well, if, re, if man's native intellectual ability through logic can't get us answers in reason alone or empiricism alone, we, and, and skepticism says that there are no answers, we can't live as if there are no answers. So we have to look inside and just just hope for something against hope, but there's no real objective criteria, validation, or source of knowledge. And that's the essence of mysticism. This chart is one that's familiar to many of you, that there are really four ways in which we know anything. They're all systems of knowledge. They're all systems of perception. Three of them are the human traditions of men. One is the revelation of God. The one that will develop across the bottom divine viewpoint, this is what comes from God through his word. The top three systems are what has developed and what Paul refers to in Colossians 2.8 as, uh, as philosophy, empty deceit, and the traditions of men are the basic principles of the world. So I've broken this down into the name of the system, the starting point intellectually, and its method. The first system I've already stated is rationalism, the idea that I can start with with just innate ideas, and using logic alone, I can achieve knowledge of God's existence, whether he exists or not. I can achieve knowledge of uh, eternal truths just on human reason alone. So the starting point is these innate ideas and a faith in human ability. See, it's not faith or rationalism. Rationalism is predicated on a faith in human cognition as being capable of finding ultimate truth. So it does so through the method of the independent use, independent of Scripture, that is, independent of revelation, the independent use of logic and reason. Empiricism starts with sense perceptions and tries to argue from sense perception uh, based, again, on the independent use of logic and reason, that he can come up with eternal answers. And that always fails. 
and skepticism then comes, and the reaction is mysticism. Where's all, where's all the action in mysticism? It's between your ears. See, it's just the, the dark side of rationalism and empiricism, and it's the dark side because there's no, it's irrational. There's no, they've rejected the methodology of logic and reason, and so it's just an intuition that somehow internally I know something, I can't express it cognitively because to express it propositionally or cognitively is inherently uh, inconsistent with the assumption that it's just this nonverbal intuitive insight into reality. So again, it's faith in human ability. It's faith in what's going on between your ears and nothing outside of what's between your ears. But Scripture says that the ultimate authority is revelation. It comes from God. I can know it's true because somebody who's eternal and who was there, for example, at creation, has told me what happened. I don't have to be able to identify it or verify it through systems of reason or systems of empiricism because ultimately not all the data is there because what they exclude is data from the eyewitness report, which is in the first chapters of Genesis. So revelation uh, is the idea of an objective disclosure from God and we use logic and reason, it's in contrast to mysticism, which rejects logic and reason. We use logic and reason, but it's dependent upon, upon God and, and the scriptures. So that just defines those terms for some of you that, that may still have trouble trying to gra- grab a hold of these concepts. Everything you believe comes from one of these sources. So if either we're going to believe on the basis of the authority of God's word alone or we are going to believe on the basis of what human minds come up with by excluding what God has said. Okay, now, revelation doesn't exclude the use of reason and experience, but it limits it to what God, uh, to the framework that God has revealed. So if we try to understand what this Colossian heresy is, we need to reverse engineer it. Now, what I mean by that is we're just going to look at what the text says in relation to this false teaching that was becoming so influential and negative in Colossae and just point out some of the things that we learned just from observing the text and then see if we can attach it to anything specifically. Uh, first of all, we have uh, philosophy in a strict sense of the term, the, the philosophical source from Greek philosophy, from the pre-Socratics before the 5th century B.C. to the uh, Socrates then and Plato and Aristotle. And following them, you had the rise of, of uh, uh, Stoicism and Epicureanism. Stoicism was one of the major uh, philosophical traditions that is dealt with some in the New Testament. For example, Paul uh, deals with some uh, Stoic claims in Acts chapter 17, verse 18, and it was probably uh, the most influential philosophy uh, at the time of the first first century. And the goal of Stoicism was to teach people to attain happiness by being in control of their lives. This would really appeal to all the control freaks. So Stoicism is is this emphasis on on virtue and self-discipline and uh, control of the details uh, of your life. It rejected a view of God uh, who existed as a person and instead held to a materialistic pantheism so that God is viewed as in all of nature. So God is part of creation 
essentially. This was founded by Zeno around 300 uh, BC. There's no real spiritual world. Everything is purely uh, material. The other view that was dominant at this time is Epicureanism, which uh, too often is misrepresented today as eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Epicureanism emphasized, uh, promoted pleasure and friendship, but it wasn't to be a selfish pleasure. It was defined in terms of, uh, uh, of a very simple, frugal life. There were also skeptics that were around in the first century, uh, there were still elements of, of uh, uh, Platonic rationalism. So some people identify it with this kind of one of these philosophical elements in the early church. Now, all of those are present today in one way or another, and maybe under different names, more modernized contemporary names, but we have all of these autonomous philosophical ideas still available today. Uh, there's also an emphasis on circumcision, which is brought out in verse 11. So this idea would come from Judaism, and the issue there is, is this a, a Judaistic heresy like we like Paul dealt with in Galatia, or is it just picked up some ideas from, from Judaism into the, uh, into the mix? There were clearly certain ascetic elements in this uh, false teaching. that We see dietary regulations, don't eat, don't touch, uh, regulations regarding to observing certain feast days uh, related to new moons and especially Sabbath observance. And this is seen in Colossians 2.16, as well as in verses uh, uh, 20 and 21. And so there are these ascetic elements that if we follow this kind of rigorous uh, legalistic setup and and give up certain things, that this impresses God, and therefore we can uh, be spiritual because we have uh, impressed God. Uh, Sabbath regulation clearly shows that there's a Jewish element to this, uh, even in the church, even among uh, Protestants, there's been a, a, a thread of Sabbath observance. I remember one very well-known Old Testament scholar from Trinity Seminary who used to observe the Sabbath every Sunday. See, the Christians kind of got into allegorical interpretation at one point, and they changed Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. And so uh, I, I, he was asked, well, how, how do you observe it? Well, I don't do any work. So uh, what do you do on Sunday afternoons? I said, well, sometimes I watch football. What about the Christians that are out there playing football? I heard about that years ago. And in my first church, I had an older retired missionary in church who was a little legalistic, and she said, well, we need to observe the Sabbath. I think I ruined her whole, the rest of her life. Her social life consisted of being able to go out with her little group of friends after church on Sunday to the local restaurant, cafeteria, whatever. And I said, so you really don't think that Christians should work on the Sabbath at all? I said, but you expect Christians to serve you at the cafeteria and at the local restaurant where you go, right? She just gave me a really dirty look. And I don't think she ever enjoyed her Sunday lunch again for the rest of her life. So uh, these ascetic elements do slip in. An emphasis on self-denial, which is just a pseudo-humility. We're going to impress God with our humility by giving up certain things. Then a uh, fifth element that we see in this is worship of angels. And this is seen in Colossians 2.18. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels 
And so the idea here is are they worshiping angels or they want to worship like angels? I think it's worshiping angels, and we'll see this in a little bit. Um, Colossians 2.18. Then the sixth element we see is seeking knowledge of what has not been revealed. Uh, they, they, so it's going to bring in this mysticism blend. Seventh, they, they have in all of this, what have they done? They've given up the sufficiency of Christ, which includes sufficiency of revelation. So eternal truth has many, many sources. They're emphasizing under the eighth point, they're emphasizing the stoicheia. This is a Greek term which related to the elemental principles of the world. In Greek philosophy, this would ultimately refer to fire, wind, earth, and water. These are the basic core elements uh, that the pre-Socratics had made up of everything was these four elements in various, various combinations. Um, so uh, what would also happen is that they would assign gods to these different uh, core elements, and then by assigning deity to that, this would lead to idolatry because you're worshiping the elements, you're worshiping the God who represents the elements. And so what we see is all of these ultimately proceed from a fundamental emphasis on self-indulgence. It's I'm rejecting the authority of what God's revealed, and I'm going to substitute my own ideas for that. And so this is the tenth point. The issue is authority. It always is. Your ideas are God's ideas. Who's the ultimate determiner of truth? God or the creature. Now we get into mysticism, which is really a difficult thing to, for a lot of people to understand, even though you're probably w- mystical in some sense and you don't know it. We all have times when we rely on, on, on intuition or impression. Now, I don't mean, now intuition's a funny term because intuition often is made up of a lot of things that we've learned and, and we've had, an ex- had enough experience in life to where we're able to f- factor in our brains, our little computers between our ears, process a tremendous amount of data very rapidly and present us with an almost an instant conclusion about something just because we've had a past experience with, with certain things. For example, if you're a parent and you've spent a certain amount of time raising children, you've gained a lot of experience in terms of evaluating people in terms of uh, maybe whether they're telling the truth or lying. And so then you go somewhere and you're involved in a completely different situation with an adult and something happens and immediately you think, this person's lying. And you think it's an intuitive insight, but what it is is you've learned through your experience certain certain nonverbal clues that you're seeing and evaluating instantly through your eyes and ears and everything else, and you're coming to a conclusion. That's not really what I'm talking about here in terms of mysticism. Mysticism is an individual emotional sense of identification with no specific expressible content in which language points itself uh, to an inner, non-rational, subjective experience of something. In other words, this is a formal definition. It's that there's an in- internal sense that something is right or wrong, that this is what I should do, and you can't even put it into words. And if you can't put it into words, you can't verify it. Because when you put something into words, then you're expressing a proposition, and any proposition by definition can be validated or invalidated. And so it's just this, this, this sense of something as being true or real. It's non-rational. You can't evaluate it at all. It's uh, a subjective experience. Um, 
And it can only be indicated by making certain statements about it, but making statements about a non-word impression is self-contradictory. It just it, it, it's it's a major problem, but you have a certain elements of what I call soft mysticism in a lot of Christianity and in a lot of different um, different religions. And mysticism basically posits uh, two kinds of knowledge: one that's based on learned information, and another that's based on impressions or feelings. But impressions or feelings trump what you learn through specific external logical facts. And so when it comes to Christianity, those impressions in Christian forms of mysticism, and we've seen a real resurrection of this in the last 20 or 30 years, especially uh, return to uh, medieval mysticism and reading the Roman Catholic medieval mystics. Um, what we see here is that uh, that, that non-verbal, non-verifiable impression or feeling trumps revelation. And so we begin to interpret what God says in terms of how we feel. It's not really an emotion, though. It's really just this inner sense of something being uh, right or wrong. So that's ultimately what's going on here. Now, uh, because of time's sake, because of the congregational meeting, I want to... uh, Uh, go to uh, one more slide here. We'll come back and look at this a little more next time. But in the next four verses, this has become the issue. There's this this religious system that borrows from a lot of different ideas. We'll look at some some of those uh, next time. But you have two commands, let no one judge you and let no one cheat you. Those are in green. Because when you buy into any kind of false system of authority, it's going to rob you and cheat you spiritually on the basis of God's word. Now, the last thing that Paul says in this these four verse section Colossians 2:9 is the real issue. Because whenever we're buying into some other system of authority, what we're basically saying is that that the source of meaning in life isn't God and his word and Jesus Christ. It comes from something else. It may be you may be camouflaging it by saying Christ plus or God plus or scripture plus, but ultimately you're saying that this other thing that's added becomes the really key element in being able to know truth and meaning in life. And that's what Paul gets to in verse 19. He says that the problem with these people who bought into this is that they're not holding fast to the head, which is Jesus Christ. He's already found Jesus Christ is the head of the body uh, of Christ. So you're not holding fast, which means holding on to Jesus alone, holding fast to the head from whom all the body, that's all Christians, are nourished and knit together, by joints and ligaments, and then he says, grows with the increase that is from God. How do we grow? We grow only on the basis of Christ alone. This is another claim of exclusivity. And this is what Christ has provided for us, is the only source of growth, the only growth spiritually, and the only growth as a church qualitatively, not quantitatively in terms of numbers, although that may or may not happen. It cannot be controlled. But we can control the qualitative issue, which is in line with uh, our congregational meeting, which will begin in a few minutes, is is what I want to say something about. This church, I think, is well-grounded. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we don't have problems. Wherever there are people with sin natures, there are always problems. We always have to learn how to overcome that. That's part of growing spiritually and within the body of Christ. That's That's part of our test. Uh, one of the kinds of tests that we have. 
But one of the challenges we often have in life, especially as a small church, speaking corporately, is sometimes we look around and we go, hmm, our numbers aren't increasing. Our numbers might even be diminishing. Uh, what's going on here? Always the wrong question to answer. There may be some element there if there's something overt, but usually it's, in his, historically it's always been a wrong question leading to bad answers. And we experience that a lot today. You're not a healthy church if you haven't grown to four or 5,000 people. I mean, look at all these mega churches. They're doing something right. Yeah, but it's not, you evaluate it biblically, they're not doing much right. And I don't want to criticize them. I want to praise y'all. Y'all are doing a great job. I go, when I go to the hospital and I'm talking to people who are there and they tell me how other people in the church are calling them, encouraging them, sending them cards, you know, it, it, it's just tremendous. There is so much that goes on in this congregation that is, that I don't directly see. In fact, what, the problem with being an executive over a church or a coach over a football team or president over the country is, is whether you, they're official or unofficial, there's always handlers who sift and uh, evaluate data so that you don't always hear all the bad stuff, uh, whatever it might be. They, they want to protect you. Uh, so you don't all, and sometimes you don't even hear the good stuff. And so it always pleases me when I hear how wonderful people in this congregation are. There is so much that, that is done by the folks in this congregation in terms of how they should properly uh, minister to one another that it, it's just tremendous. It's just tremendous. Do we have room to grow? Sure we do. But what we do is tremendous. And the people who study the word, there are a lot of mature, mature and maturing believers in this congregation, and that is a um, that is a tremendous testimony to the devotion that people put in, and the priority that people in this congregation put upon the word of God. But the negative of that is that the more we do that, the more it sets us in conflict with the culture around us. Because the culture around us is moving faster and faster into pure secularism and hostility to biblical Christianity. And so the more we focus on the scripture and, and being biblical in our thinking and our actions, the more we set ourselves apart in contrast to those around us. That's not attractive to a lot of people who are especially baby believers who come out of these other churches who are taught differently. And so we're always going to run into those kinds of issues. And it does raise a question in the minds of many people is, where's the next generation? And trust me, this isn't just impacting us. It also has an impact in many other uh, Christian denominations and churches, as well as uh, even some uh, non-Christian groups. I hear this from some of my Jewish friends who are in synagogue. Is that, and, and a lot of this is the, the impact of postmodern thought upon, uh, upon our culture. And it's, it's a, extremely devastating. But we always have to come back to trusting in God. Who's the real source of the power in this congregation or any congregation? It's God. He has richly blessed us. When I look around at this congregation, and we've had people come and go, and, and I think back, we're going to have our eighth anniversary in just a few, uh, a few weeks. In about six weeks, we will have our celebration of our eighth, eighth year we began right about uh, Easter, I think it was the second Sunday of April in 2004. And I look out on the congregation, there are p- people who aren't here anymore. Some have gone to be with the Lord in heaven. 
Some can't come anymore due to health reasons. Some have moved away from Houston, moved away from Texas, moved outside the United States. And we, we, we don't see them. And there's always that ebb and flow within any, within any congregation. But sometimes we look at that and we go, what's going on? And, and, and a pastor can, can get discouraged over that. Where did everybody go? We don't know. People go for different reasons. We always have to come back to 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7. Paul deals with this problem in Corinth because they've sort of, they, they, they've developed a lot of cliques. Clicks are always bad in a church. We always need to be kind of aware, make kind of think a little bit. Do, do, I, do I reach out and get to know new people who come to be a part of the congregation? And, and I remember I used to hate that when I was a, a, a I, I used to say, you know, there's one of these books that says everything I need to know about life I learned in kindergarten. I think everything I learned, I need to learn about ministry, I learned at Camp Isle. Because that was ministry in a in a really core core way, and one of the things that uh, that we were told as counselor, and I you, you just you heard it so much you hated it. Camp is for the campers. No, I want to go to camp and hang out with my peers and my friends. I don't want to get to know people I don't know. I want us to go there and spend time with people I already know. But I would just be amazed at, at new people who would come in, and, and later they would become fast friends. And you get a chance to minister to those new people and get to know them. And they have great backgrounds and great ideas, and they're, they're neat. we just don't stay within our own little sector. But that was a problem in Corinth to such a degree that Paul had to address it. They, they identified themselves with different leaders. Some said they were of Paul, some of Apollos, some of Cephas, some of others. And so Paul kind of alludes to this again by when he gets into chapter 3, and he says, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? Who's Robbie Dean? Who's Bruce Bumgardner? Who's David Dunn? Who's Mark Perkins? Who's Charlie Clough? We're just all trying to do the same thing that the Lord has uh, told us to do. Um, one of us plants, another waters, but it's God who gives the increase. We all have our role within the body of Christ. Even as pastors, each one has their niche. Each one has their role. It's God who gives the increase. God may give some great increase and others less increase, but God's the one, if it, the increase has any value whatsoever, it's the increase that comes from God. I can build, based on the flesh, a big church. I can go use all kinds of techniques to do it. Anybody can. Look at the huge churches that teach heresy. I mean, real heresy. I mean, you've got a lot of churches out there deny the Trinity, so-called churches that deny the Trinity, deny, uh, deny the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, deny the deity of Christ, but they've built big, huge, wealthy organizations. Anybody can do that in the flesh. The issue is God giving the increase. As Paul says in verse 7, So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. What we want above all things to be true of West Houston Bible Church is that God gives the increase, that this church is committed to the sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of grace and the sufficiency of Scripture. And I see that in you all the time. That doesn't mean you're perfect doesn't mean I'm perfect. But we understand what the issue is. And that's the foundation, the only foundation on which to build, which is the foundation of Jesus Christ. 
And uh, I'm not going to give a report during the congregational meeting because that's it. But you all do a great job. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be here, to be a part of this body, to see you work in the lives of so many, to see how so many within this congregation are, are focused upon your word and upon the truth and who give of themselves in many unseen ways and in sometimes in seen ways. And we, we see how they grow. Others we know are out there. They, they watch. They can't come physically for t- distance reasons or health reasons, so they're here, uh, but not in person. They're watching through live stream. They're studying, participating through the media ministry on the Internet. And, Father, this is all due to your grace. Uh, You are the one who provides the hearers. You're the one who provides the resources. You're the one who provides the spiritual growth. You're the one who provides the physical material growth. We are dependent exclusively upon you. This is not something we do in our effort. It is something we do to glorify you, and we recognize you are the real source, the only genuine source of real growth, quality growth in this congregation. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died for you and for your sins. He paid your penalty on the cross. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the issue, therefore, isn't your sin or your failure. The issue is, are you willing to accept Christ's sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice for you? And that and that alone is the basis of salvation. For when we accept that, we are indeed accepting God's free gift of righteousness that comes through faith alone in Christ alone. And it is on that basis we have confidence and certainty of an eternal salvation. We have a real hope that focuses on our eternal destiny. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with, with your word, the truth of your word, and that as this congregation goes forward, we may continue to hold fast to your word, to Jesus Christ, and to grace. In his precious name we pray. Amen.